Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady. I'm joined as always by Billy. And once again, we have Adam LaPierre, our director of wine on the podcast today. We're going to review a few things that have happened over the past week, mainly our Comte de Champagne sellout. We sold out another collection, that $38,000 total value collection in under 13 hours. So we're continuing our streak of same day sellouts. But one of the main things we want to dive into and discuss today is how we as Vint or really how any wine investor might try and find value in a bull market, which is sort of what we find ourselves in, in fine wine today, while other traditional equity markets are in a downtrend. I think we've seen a little bit of a pickup over the last couple of days or maybe last 10 days. But overall in the year, indexes like the S&P 500 are trending down and in the red, but wine is going strong. I think we're seeing a 10.3% increase year to date in the LiveX 1000, which is sort of the S&P 500 index for wine, kind of tracks the broadest data points in the market for increases in value. So we wanted to check in with our wine team and just get a sense from Billy and Adam on how do we stay ahead of things that are happening in the market? How do we see trends before they happen? And how do we find value in the midst of a market that some folks might say is a little inflated or overbought as we see ourselves on a little bit of a wine bull run these days? So we'll discuss that. Here briefly, I'll turn it over to Adam and Billy. Then on the back end of the episode, we have another interview this time focusing around collectibles, we'll have Buster Schur, the host of the Buster Show podcast and founder of the Utility Mike's NFT project on the back end of the episode today, discussing collectibles with Billy and I, discussing the projects that he's been working on recently. You may have seen Buster around Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter. He's really big in the sports media space, media space in general, and also is a huge proponent of collectible assets and has a great perspective on the collectible markets in general and owns some really cool pieces, unique collectibles around history and art and other things. So it was a great conversation with him and we're excited to share that with you at the end of this episode. But let's dive in a little bit, Billy and Adam. Maybe you can just pull the curtain back a little bit and shed some light on how it is that Vint finds value in a bull market. How do we continue to find and source collections that we hope, you know, will provide proceeds for our investors in the future. Thanks, Brady. Yeah, great to be back on the podcast. One of the things that we've always tried to do and we're continuing to become more structured and rigorous in our overall approach is first kind of defining the attributes that comprise value. Because I think value can be found by looking at wines through a lot of different lenses. We talked about this a little bit last time I was on. I really trying to break down the individual attributes around a product. And that can be the region of origin. It can be the specific producer from a historical lens, as well as buzz around a producer and trends around a producer and the demand that that can stimulate. Thinking about vintage and categorizing the overall quality of the vintage, as well as the timing that specific wines might be consumed, because that can really help us find value 
as supply gets more scarce, defining overall quality, and then ultimately thinking about the entry price, the acquisition cost of a specific wines as well. So the Tadger is a great example of one way that we identified value. And that's strictly by thinking about the quality of those wines objectively. And when I say objectively, looking at how the most influential critics think about the the quality of Tattinger and Comte de Champagne and comparing that to the market price of other wines of comparable or even lesser quality and, and really looking at what is the market willing to pay for certain wines that have a kind of a defined quality level. So with the Tattinger Comte de Champagne collection, we really saw that as those wines as over-delivering in terms of intrinsic quality for price. And then we combine that with great sourcing process, which enabled us to secure those wines at below market price. So again, getting great quality for the price relative to the overall category, and then acquiring those wines at very favorable costs. That's really great information to add and color to add there, Adam. I know, Billy, if you wanted to jump in and talk a little bit about the Recent collections, I know that you know there've been some changes in our structure and how we've, as we brought Adam on, how we've gone about putting our collections together. Have there been any changes from last year, 2021, to now in terms of how we assess these markets and what kinds of wines we bring in and, and see value in? Or has it been pretty consistent? I would say it's been consistent. I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, and it, it's more, we've become more efficient in this process with Adam being in-house, but the main tenants have held true, you know, that looking for all those elements that Adam had talked about in, you know, layering on rarity, really leveraging the access that we're able to get with our extensive network of partners. Again, the Comte de Champagne example was really good in the sense that there was only 36 vintages ever produced. So for that was something that we had always considered. And then this example was like a prime combination of, of really all these things that we look for in great sourcing pricing, excellent quality compared to the other tête de cuvée of competitors, and then also that limited supply. So not really. It's been the same elements. It's just we've gotten more efficient. As Vint has bought and purchased more wine, we've developed a wider network of partners, but we've also gained deeper trust with our partners that we've worked with. So we're getting access to better and better selections. And it's it's certainly a lot easier to get access to great stuff than it was when we very first started. People know who we are now, but the process and our parameters have remained the same. It's just gotten better and better. And of course, having Adam in houses has amplified our abilities immensely. Where do, you know, when we think about wine futures or maybe the Bordeaux on Primor, which we kind of just got out of the thick of, where does something like wine futures fit into assessing a value in a bull market? Is there a greater opportunity there? It can depend. The EP campaigns, the futures campaigns from Bordeaux are very interesting, the dynamics, because all of the producers release on different dates and this campaign can go on for over a month. And a lot of the way that the campaign will evolve as it relates to release prices can often change throughout the duration of a campaign because producers are getting feedback uh, based on how the market is receiving these early releases. So that can sometimes cause some shift strategy towards the back half of the campaign. So it's really interesting to watch. The 2021 campaign 
is an interesting one for us for a few reasons. I think you've got the the backdrop of three very strong vintages from a quality perspective in Bordeaux. Um, but you also have a lot of, I think at the beginning of the campaign, there was a lot of market uncertainty around um, and just sort of global macro uh, conditions and how that would impact demand. Um, the other thing that is an interesting thing for us to consider in the US market is we've got a very favorable exchange rate. The dollar is strong relative to um, to the euro today. And so when we evaluate like price quality and fair market value for um, for 2020 wines, 2021 wines as futures, we're thinking about kind of all those things. Um, and really what I what we're looking at is um, again overall quality of those of a specific wine as um, as determined by critics, um, availability of physical vintages on the market, um, and trying to find analogs out there um, from a specific producer from a comparable vintage, and using that as a way of um, as a way of sort of understanding what is a fair market value for a particular wine. So we're kind of doing some of these calculations in the background. Um, and in our lens is slightly different being that we are in the US and that um, most likely we will be um, selling these assets in the US market in the future. So thinking about the currency um, and the FX rates today is something that has been an important consideration for us. Um, and then, you know, the other thing to think about in general is almost always uh, buying Bordeaux as futures gives you the lowest possible acquisition price for these assets, um, all, all else being equal. Yeah, I think one, one thing we'll discuss with uh, Buster on the end of this episode in our interview is in the collectible markets, just how difficult it is to do to find comps for some of these assets, right? But in wine, you know, one that we have vintage after vintage from the same producers from the same regions and an abundance of pricing data. Um, there's certainly, it seems like enough information to make educated, relatively educated guesses on where the market may be headed for a particular bottle, regardless of, you know, what stage the macro market is in, whether it's a bull run or a bear market, or it's just kind of coasting along. Um, is, is, do, do you find that that's, that's the case that, the abundance of information and, and historical pricing data and vintage data that cycles kind of repeat themselves and, and, and that you can find some of those patterns, or is that still sometimes a challenge to, to sift through in these markets? I think it could be a, a challenge just in that, you know, the structure of the market is changing. You've got more consumers of these wines over time. I mean, consumption and demand for it wines in this category is continuing to grow. Production is not really growing, right? It's stable or in some instances decreasing. And obviously in certain vintages that can have an impact, but overall demand is growing. Supply is stable or decreasing in general. So I think that's a dynamic. And, and also producers are enacting different strategies to manage supply. So I think there are analogs as it relates to quality and price on a given day, but 
there are still interesting variables that we don't fully understand that can have you know very favorable or interesting impacts. Yeah, I was going to add that a little bit ago when you're mentioning the what we are looking for in terms of trends. I think the analogs is like say an excellent vintage that has a certain rating could compare to one like that in the same sense. But what's interesting with in the past, at least to me in the past 10, 20 years is the number of so-called great vintages in certain regions has increased. In the 90s, there weren't as many standout vintages for most of the traditional regions in Europe. But then in the mid 2000s, and especially this last, you know, towards the end, 18, 19, 20 in Bordeaux, you're seeing a, a not a preponderance, but kind of cluster of these great vintages, whereas maybe you had like a whole dead decade. So it's kind of hard to, one, normalize a certain demand based on maybe certain time period. There are different trends in terms of consumption, but there's also certain trends in availability of quality vintages coming out that might be younger or are just now reaching drinking age, which I know Adam mentioned earlier. But I think that's an interesting variable to throw in is when will certain wines be ready for drinking? good vintages versus bad vintages and then how do the previous 10 years kind of impact where people are drinking now yeah very good well said i think the other thing to consider obviously is as consumption globally and demand for these wines grows there are certain markets that interact with these wines differently than we do here in the u.s so when you think of china as an example the brand right the visibility and prestige of a specific brand is the most important one of the most important considerations and the vintage is actually not that relevant. So whereas in the US, the, the demand for top, what quote unquote top vintage is very high and it does vary based on kind of overall perception. So all this to your point, uh, Billy, I think there's just so many interesting inputs. One of the things, Brady, that we are going to be focusing on in the future is coming up with ways to model based on a lot of these different inputs that will give us some additional, I don't know that we're going to make decisions. We're, we are not, definitely not going to make prescriptive decisions based on a model, but will give us different ways to view these assets and to identify value. Yeah, I think that's, I think we mentioned that recently on their episode as well, where quantitative analysis and modeling the markets can certainly be helpful. But at the end of the day, there's also a component where there's also a qualitative component that needs to be thought through and an understanding of customer expectations and trends in in European markets versus the US markets, like you were just saying, or in the Asian markets, like you were just saying. Those are all things that you can't necessarily measure with a strictly quant analysis or, or some kind of financial modeling. So we're certainly fortunate to have you and Billy taking care of that side of our business and our investors are certainly fortunate that we have that level of expertise here and hopefully we'll continue to find high value assets as we continue through the rest of this year. Billy, Adam, anything else to add as we close up and, and move into our interview with Buster? We've got some exciting collections coming up and each one represents a slightly different value proposition related to these you know, these attributes that we've been discussing. And I think in the thesis documents, we're really trying to outline kind of the, these different key considerations that we are following when we're making these decisions to source these assets. So I think it'll be an interesting thing for people to, as they look at some of the upcoming collections, kind of get a view on the, the different ways that we are approaching and defining and identifying value. Yeah. And I'll, I'll build on the 
hype for the upcoming collections. We have some producers and regions that we haven't had before. So I, I know I'm excited for those. And then I'm also excited for this Buster interview here. He's a young guy, but he is very mature in his interests. He loves history. He collects Abraham Lincoln and George Washington's signatures. He was just really excited about a, a type one photo of the Titanic that he got. And it's like, it's really interesting to hear such a, a young guy have such a unique respect and interest in history. So I'm excited for the share the interview with everyone. Yeah, thanks, everyone. We'll turn it over to the interview now. And thank you again to Billy and Adam for shedding some light there. Hey, Buster, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what you do day to day, what kinds of projects you're involved with, and then we can get in and, and talk about collectibles. For sure. Yeah. So I've been a collector since I was you know, 13 years old in 2013. Started a basketball media platform called Hoops Nation, which is now one of the biggest independent sports media platforms in the country, which is fun. We've got 10 million followers across social covering basketball media and news and stuff. I also got into broadcasting pretty young, done stuff for the NBA, host a show called The Crew League, which is executive produced by Diddy and Chris Brown and Drake came and I co-hosted it with Jack Harlow and a few others. We're filming season four soon. That's on Revolt TV. And then do a lot of stuff in, in the collectible space, you know, through content and, you know, other sorts of things, involvement with platforms such as Liquid Marketplace with Logan Paul and a few others. Yeah, I'm just a huge collector. I collect Abraham Lincoln and George Washington signatures and documents, sports cards, type one photos, tickets, all sorts of different stuff. And uh, definitely, you know, curious about wine as well. So I'm happy to be doing this. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining. I mean, one thing that caught my eye, like you said, was just how unique some of the assets that you're interested in are, I mean, you know, some of those Abraham Lincoln documents, the George Washington debt certificate. Is that what I saw recently? I think some of that, and the word was debt, D-E-B-T, not death certificate. Although maybe um, there is a death certificate out there, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about some of those assets. And did you just kind of stumble into collecting historical documents or how did that work? For sure. And the only problem with a death certificate is that he wouldn't have been able to sign it. Um, <laughs> That's right. But I got into it. I'd been in sports cards, first baseball, then basketball. And I was in love with the concept of, you know, sort of the history that goes along with it and the idea that modern cards could move with how the players actually play. But the market got too big and that ended up not following through. Like back in the day, in like 2016, 17, 18, it used to be the cards value corresponded with how the player played on the court. But then the market just got so big and there was so much money involved that it, it became tied to larger market conditions than, you know, just, uh, just that. And then, you know, the card company started producing more because of all those things. So that sort of drove me to want to check out and, and learn new spaces. And you know, I sort of studied which sectors had the biggest shock factor. Like I sort of judge things by what's somebody's reaction to it. Like how much does their jaw drop in like centimeters and inches? It's like, how much does your jaw drop when I show you this LeBron James rookie card versus this Abraham Lincoln document versus this T-Rex tooth versus this type one photo of the Titanic? That's what I'm interested in. And when I started getting into this and I was talking to people about it, they were like, you know, that's insane. But you know, it's one fifth the price of a Zion Williamson rookie patch auto. And I'm like, all right, there's something here. So I really started spending more time learning about it. I learned that it it didn't ever go up by a crazy amount. Like there weren't 400,000% spikes in its value, but it didn't go down. Like in 2008, 
this stuff stayed pretty steady and it has a hundred plus year of historical value. And it's of a category that I like to call museum quality assets, which just means that if you wanted to, you could loan it to a museum for three to 6% of its value on an annual basis, getting paid out just to have it held there. Whereas you can't really do that with cards or most assets. So this fell into that. Everything's a one of one. There's real history to it and it, it drops jaws. So that's why I got into it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a history buff myself. So I think it's, it's fun to own a piece of history like that. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, when you think about collecting versus investing, where does your mind go in terms of making distinctions between the two? Or like, do you not really make distinctions, you know, between how someone might participate in the market, depending on which of those categories they fall into? Yeah, I don't really believe there's such a thing as short-term investing in collectibles because there are so many larger factors. You're just gambling if you're playing the short term. So I think, you know, the ones that have done the best for me and for everybody else that I've seen, unless they just got lucky with timing over the last three years and you know had some insight, were, you know, people who were in it just collecting. And then if it gets to a value that you can't turn down, then you sell it. Like if this Washington that you bought for $25,000 in 2017 becomes worth 500,000 and it makes sense for you to sell it, then you sell it. That's how I sort of identify what, you know, quote unquote investing is. It's just long-term collecting. And then if it ever gets to that point, you sell it. But if not, you're just as happy holding it. I think though, back to the loaning to museums concept, I think that some assets are good enough as to where they could be considered a business. Like if you're buying a $20 million T-Rex full skeleton and skull, there are only about 15 of, of pretty good quality in the world. That's something that you can loan to a museum for, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. In that instance, it's a business. It's not just uh, mm-hmm. a collectible because it's generating you a, a significant dividend. I think there are different types of collectibles and classes, and that's sort of how I break them down in, in my head. But I, I don't really believe in investing in collectibles on a sub-five-year basis. Other, It's just gambling. So do you find yourself ever having any personal bias in terms of your interest into what you end up collecting? Like, say, I'm a big Civil War guy. Um, so I would be more like, you know, leaning probably towards more of the Abraham Lincoln stuff, but like, I'm also a big, like world war two guy. And I assume there's not as much, you know, right now that's collectible or in terms of value from world war two, how do you like balance your personal interests versus what you think might be a good investment wise? Most of my collection, I'm somewhat unique in the sense that I think about content when I think about my collection, you know, I'm, I'm investing for the content as well. Like if I, if I, like I'm a huge Knicks fan and I, I just naturally, you know, end up collecting a lot of Knicks stuff. Obviously, you know, there are a lot of Knicks fans, but their history is not very rich over the last 40 years in terms of winning. You know, so it, it definitely impacts stuff on that front. But in terms of being biased, I think you have to you have to follow those personal interests because you'll dive deeper into those niches. And there is stuff of value from everything historically significant, like even real modern stuff, like real modern. So you got to dive into that because you'll research it more than other people who are just in it for the investment and not actually passionate about it. And long-term, you'll probably 
you know, come out ahead. Um, but I'm also a believer in like by the top 5% of the class, not the bottom 95% because it holds its value better from an investment perspective. But, you know, I think sort of some of the news over these last two years, which was maybe somewhat of a bubble in the collectibles world will hopefully set people straight and, you know, more of the, you know, top high quality, one of one, you know, very unique items. One of the things that I'd love to talk about as well is like on the wine front, one of the best things about wine is that there's actual utility. That isn't true in traditional collectibles. I can't eat my Abraham Lincoln. Maybe I could, but I wouldn't, you know, even if this, quote unquote investment doesn't pan out, you can still enjoy this thing and the utility that it brings. Although you could argue that loaning it to museum is utility or uh, looking at it and making you happy is also utility. Dopamine rushes that the Washington gives me every time I look at it. There's something to say for that too, but I, I do love that about wine. Yeah. I think the, the part on that that's interesting too, is it's not say I want to drink it. Sure. I could, I could enjoy something that I've invested in, but it's also the fact that the quantity is going down. So nobody's going to eat that T-Rex skeleton and then there'll be 14 T-Rex skeletons. So it's kind of that, that interesting balance of, of that aspect of it too, that kind of brings a different dynamic to the wine as an investment as well. It's true. Yeah. That, in that example, it's similar to like sports card boxes. You know, everyone that's open, the pop goes down and there, there are fewer out there. The unique pressures, especially on like the whiskey market. So whiskey, when you compare it to wine, I think if you were to put on a scale, just like value of the physical liquid versus collectible value, a lot more is put on the collectible side with whiskey. There's a lot more attention to things like rarity, age of the particular bottling, you know, whether it's a 50 year whiskey or, you know, 25 year whiskey or whatever it may be. We definitely see more sets and there's just a lot more collectors focused on rarity, I think, in the whiskey market versus the wine market. And so that's also a consumable. So you have uh, multiple pressures on supply and demand, right? The, the demand coming from the rarity side and the pressure on supply from the fact that you can still drink it, which, yeah, I don't think there are any other collectible asset classes out there like wine and spirits where there are those unique pressures. For sure. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Last time we talked, you said that you're not currently, you know, investing in wine, but you said that you do have a good amount of wine um, at your house, maybe that people are just giving you and stuff. Do you feel like you're, you're starting to collect and drink more wine or is it still, you know, something that you haven't quite waded into? You know, I'm so funny. I don't drink at all, but I have a lot of wine just because I, I like the stories behind it. And I like it as a gift because most people do drink. So you know, I, I just, whenever I see stuff that looks interesting or I, I like, uh, you know, the idea of it or the location of it, I just end up buying it similar to my impulses on the collectibles front. So I've ended up with a decent amount of wine that I just give out for friends and, uh, you know, things like that. I like what you were saying about the, if you're investing or collecting in your passion, you're more likely to go deeper on it. And that's exactly how I got into wine. I kind of just fell down the rabbit hole and, and read and read and was able to join Vint. But to me, I, I think there are parallels to kind of like, I'm also a, a history buff, not probably definitely not to your level, but that's what I love the overlap about wine and the the stories behind it. And basically you're having a, a time capsule of 
that vintage and the effort that the winemaker put in. I, I always used to compare it to my, um, I studied art history in undergrad and I always compare it more to art history than, than purely like a beverage. So I think there's, I, I like the stories and I have a lot of, or some bottles here that are basically here just for the story's sake and not necessarily for the, for the wine itself. So I think that's, that's yeah, pretty I mean, cool. It's a, it's a liquid time capsule. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Just the thought of like all the things that have happened in the world since this bottle was, you know, created and then the, you know, wine was put inside, like just, you know, I mean, you look at really old stuff. I, I did a video of the, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but it was uh, the oldest wine bottle ever found. I think it was t- like 3000 years old or 2,500 years old, probably disgusting, but it was found like, <laughs> near this burial chamber. And, you know, I was just looking at it and I was like, you know, the amount of things that have happened in the world since this wine bottle was sealed 2,500 plus years ago. I mean, that talk about a time capsule. That's, that's pretty incredible. Even if it tastes like yogurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go to certain places around the world and, you know, it might just be a location, whether it's a civil war battlefield and you realize, wow, I'm standing in on the actual ground, the same rocks, the same dirt that was here when X, Y, Z event was happening. That's kind of the same with wine too. Like you could have vineyards planted virtually, you know, and theoretically anywhere where history quote unquote has happened. And I think that's really neat that you can say, man, like, you know, these vines are in the same dirt that has been here for thousands of years. Um, really neat. Yeah, that that's a cool concept. Like, you know, where the you know, Battle of Gettysburg wine. <laughs> do people do that? Is that a thing? Definitely well, in Bordeaux in France. And I mean, Billy could certainly speak to that more. But the history through the world wars and in, um, in France and Germany is really incredible related to wine. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, like, if you want to talk real battlefield wine, I think uh, Champagne was right on the front line of World War One, back and forth. So there's definitely some some battlefield wine there. One of my favorite things, there's a book called Wine and War um, that I referenced on the last podcast, but the Nazis uh, stored a bunch of the wine that they had pillaged throughout Europe under, there's like a, a perfect cellar area under Hitler's eagle's nest over in Austria. So that's like a fun fact that like, when I went there, I was riding up and I was like, guys, I really don't want to see the top. I want to go down to see where the, the wine was stored. That was pretty cool. Wow. But I, I will say back to Brady's point on the whiskey wine, when it's bottled to your point, it'll, you know, evolve and eventually not become wine anymore. It'll still be technically drinkable, but probably not taste good. But whiskey, once it's bottled, as long as there's no, you know, something in messing with the, the capsule really, or the top, it will remain exactly as is pretty much. You know, there, there might be a little bit of alcohol evaporation over really long periods of time, but that's a real time capsule. So if you ever want to, and that's to Brady's point, why it's a little bit more collectible. People will put that up, you know, on their mantle in a display case in their you know living rooms because it doesn't need to be temperature controlled. And a lot of the bottlings are really ornate. So the packaging is what people really want to see. And it's, to me, it's interesting that that doesn't evolve at all. So you could have a 12 year from 1920 and in theory, it should be pretty much the same as it went in the bottle. I mean, maybe it, some of the alcohol evaporated, but that's pretty cool to me. Very cool. Very, very cool. You've been kind of, like you said in, in the beginning, at the crossroads between celebrity culture, media culture, sports culture, and then collectibles. Have you seen a lot of overlap between those two groups recently? That is collectors or athletes, media personalities, getting more interested in collectibles. You know, as we see, wine is pretty popular in the NBA. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Can you 
speak to that at all? Have you seen an increase in enthusiasm around those subjects? More and more, for sure. You know, I think wine sort of um, predates the interest in collectibles just because of guys like, you know, in, in modern NBA, guys like LeBron obviously being very passionate about the subject. But on the collectibles, like cards and memorabilia and jerseys, I think in the last couple of years, more guys doing jersey swaps. And I think the fact of the matter is that since the money is real now and there's real dollars associated with all this stuff, it's it by default brings people in. They have no choice but to be interested in it. Guys regret giving away their jerseys and stuff now, given you know what things are worth. So I think money has brought everybody into it, but I still feel like it's early. I have conversations with the NBA still where, you know, I'm telling them, you know, I'm suggesting that they should be doing this, this, and this to, you know, sort of optimize around, you know, the collectibles that they have that they don't, you know, do anything with. Like I was in Chicago a few weeks ago for the NBA draft lottery. They had me interviewing a, a guy uh, in virtual reality for the draft. And they were, you know, they have those cards with each team on it. And I was like, what are you guys doing with those cards? And they were like, nothing. You want them? And I'm like, that's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> the point is that they're, they're worth a lot. You know, any fan of a team would pay for that. And I mean, imagine the number one draft pick card signed by the number one draft pick. Like that's a big collectible. Imagine that for LeBron. That's a million dollar asset that the NBA is just not taking advantage of. So mm-hmm. I, I was saying that for every home, for every game that's played, for every, you know, everything they can, you know, optimize around. So I, I, the point being that it's still very early. And I think part of it is that there isn't really much content in the space. Like Pawn Stars is the only thing and that's totally scripted and like Antiques Roadshow is something else that's also very scripted. So I think there isn't really much unscripted, high quality content in the collectible space. And I think when that happens, it'll really bring people in. So we'll see how that plays out over the next few years. And how do you think, you know, fractional platforms similar to Vent where, you know, some of these assets are being securitized and, and others they're, you know, simply being fractionalized and there are some differences there, I guess. But how do you, how much do you think that those platforms have aided the last three years, four years that you're talking about in terms of uh, this asset class really emerging on people's radars? Well, I think the most important part is the storage component of it. You know, a lot of people like take me, for example, I live in New York. Space is very expensive. Things that you would want to own quite literally don't make sense given the space, you know, in in certain cities. So I think it's incredibly important on that front. And from, you know, a standpoint of not having to worry about it, not having to worry about the conditions and not having to do all of this time, due diligence and research to keeping all of this stuff in incredible quality and condition. So I think from that standpoint, it's incredibly important. And then from a democratization standpoint, it's good, but it has a long way to go in terms of, you know, like you don't want the people who only have $10 to put into said item losing those $10, as opposed to the person who has 25,000 to put in losing the 25,000. So it fractional has a very long way to go, but I think generally speaking, it's a very good thing in terms of, you know, making things more simple for for those who are going to buy the assets anyways. There were a lot of companies in the past, just, you know, speaking kind of in our lane in the wine space who did a really good job at 
taking the burden of things like storage and insurance and acquisition and sale and all of that off of the consumer. And that's what, you know, Vint does that as well. With our platform, we kind of took it a step farther, I guess, um, past just fractionalization and into securitization as well. And so selling registered SEC qualified securities, basically equity in our collections has moved beyond democratization for us, right? It's not just about allowing you know, the person who only has $10 to spend to get into the asset class. Like you said, there are maybe some issues with that. Like maybe this isn't the asset class for you if you only have $10 to spend just from a you know personal finance perspective. But it's also about just capital efficiency generally, right? Like fractional is good even if you have $200,000 to spend because you can spread your exposure out so much more broadly. You can have a much more diversified wine portfolio, collectible portfolio, whatever it may be. So, you know, we've kind of, you know, internally moved beyond democratization as the language and towards accessibility, because I think that that relates to everyone, whether you have $10 or, you know, 100,000. Yeah, I think that's right. But then, you know, you know, on the other side, what's going to, you know, sort of show whether these platforms are, you know, long, long term across the board, you know, in all collectible classes is, is the liquidity because it's not general market liquidity, it's individual by the platform liquidity. So it's two bets, right? If you're investing on a platform, it's the bet on the asset, and then it's the bet on the platform bringing exposure to the asset. So it's a two-folded investment for each platform that you're investing in. And you know, I think that's important. On that front, I think we're well positioned in the wine industry, because like you were saying with over a hundred years of you know, track record for like Lincoln or Washington. Yeah, wine, wine's great on that front, right? Yeah. It's pretty well established on that front, which is nice. Thinking about another side of the accessibility piece, I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on, I know you have an NFT project and your perspective on linking NFTs to some of these physical assets and how you've seen people trying to do that maybe in whether it be sports memorabilia or even some of the things that you're working with, how have you seen that kind of start playing out? Because that's a struggle in the, the wine space right now. Yeah, to address NFTs quickly, broadly speaking, I think most are terrible and most you know will go to zero because there's no underlying business behind it. The NFTs that I believe in are the ones who have ways outside of just the NFTs selling to create opportunities, experiences, revenue for those who are holding said project. So like what we decided to do with the mics for, for my project was, you know, this podcast been going for two years, generates revenue. All right, great. Now, how do we, how do we give people access? So one mic per episode, each mic grants people access to every episode before it comes out, as well as packages in the mail of collectibles, coins, cards, different like old stamps and old currency and different, different, assets that just show up in the mail for free, no gas. That was sort of the idea. And, you know, it definitely the sales benefited it, but it was that there was an underlying business behind it. And that's why I was able to jump in on it because, you know, NFTs definitely don't have that hundred plus year of history. They don't have a hundred months of history quite yet, but I'm a big believer in the technology behind it and the innovation and the art. It's been really cool. It's been really cool to see in terms of NFTs relationship with physical collectibles, I don't think there is any. I, do, I don't think that that's the place for it, you know, quite frankly, because there's no additional value that you're getting. You know, it's like, all right, let's say I tie my Abraham Lincoln signature to an NFT. 
okay, now somebody takes it. They steal my NFT. They, they're able to get into my wallet. And do I now have to mail my hacker, my physical Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> obviously <laughs> yeah. not. And because that's obviously not, it defeats the purpose to begin with. So I don't think that there is a place for physical collectibles and physical collectibles on the blockchain. I, I don't, I think they're two separate, completely separate things. I think there's a place for rewarding people who buy the digital collectibles with physical collectibles, but I don't think the physical collectibles have a place as digital. That makes sense. I see what you're saying there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the NFT project that we hosted uh, with Emmett Scorsone um, and their wines, the NFT was the wine, you know, an image of the wine label buying the NFT gave you access to the wines and then also additional experiences like a wine dinner and tasting out at the producer. And so, you know, there was obviously the NFT art of the label, which is something that I guess you could keep in your wallet, but really, you know, tying those NFTs to unique experiences. I think that experiences are the direction ticketing those experiences is a really great direction because people are caring more and more about experiences, especially since the pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Experiences are where, are where it's at on that front, you know, bridging the gap. Now, like emerging asset classes, collectibles that maybe aren't on people's radars, but you're thinking about, can you throw some out there? Yeah, I mean, people are aware of most things, but, you know, I, I recently bought up some fun type one photos, like early construction of the Titanic. That old history mm-hmm. stuff is That's fun cool. for me. Tickets to specific events. I was the first person to start creating um, movie ticket stubs. I like bought a ton of opening day movie tickets to all my favorite movies growing up, and you know convinced PSA to let me grade them. So that <laughs> sort of stuff. Yeah, I like like um, like really nice signed photos in slabs, historical documents. I mean, I'm all over the board there with different presidents, like signed checks. I really like in in PSA slabs. What other random stuff? I like dinosaur fossils. Dinosaur fossils are fun. Original, like first edition books of certain classes are fun. Early tech is fun. Video games, sealed video games, signed video games. Yeah. Uh, sketches are fun, like art, like original artwork, but for as collectibles. And then like, like um, I've started collecting character design sketches from famous movies. So like Pixar character design sketches by the actual artist behind these characters, paper sketches in PSA slabs. I think that's interesting. But yeah, I'm the most, the deepest on obviously the presidential stuff. That's, that's where a, a lot of my collecting energy goes. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen you with, I've seen you with a lot of Takashi Murakami, the artist I'm a big fan of. I think uh, some of that stuff is awesome. He's the most famous living artist in the world today. He's, yeah. he's, he's the goat. Yeah. 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 So a lot of what I do is sort of, you know, it's funny, like the original idea for my mics came from his, how he's taken his flower design over 20 years. And that's what I wanted to do with the mics. It just continue to iterate and make it new and fun and use it for all the collaborations that we do. And, you know, the utility mics is the genesis of that, but, yeah, he's the inspiration behind a lot of that. So, yeah, he's great. The only problem with him is there's so much stuff out there. So much, so much. Point. Yeah. And shout out to him for, you know, capitalizing on that. But whew, good luck if you're trying to collect Murakami stuff. I'm in the same boat. I always argue that um, I'm a big David Hockney fan. 
I argue sometimes that he's one of the greatest living artists and he, it's the same way there. He's old now and he's been so prolific throughout his lifetime that it's just like, come on, man, stop, stop making so much stuff. So my stuff eventually gets more valuable, but then at the same time, I love seeing what he comes up with next. So it's, it's like signed baseball, um, signed baseballs. It's like the coolest thing to get your, you know, when you're a kid to get your favorite player to sign your baseball. And they sign so many of them though, that, you know, I'm an Orioles fan and, um, Cal Ripken, like a signed Cal Ripken baseball, like 40 bucks on eBay. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, just completely diluted the baseball signed you know, baseball market. You know, what's so crazy though. And I say this all the time. The fact that a Babe Ruth signed baseball is still as valuable as it is, is mm-hmm. mind blowing to me because of the amount of baseballs that man signed in his life. He probably signed millions of baseballs and they're still worth 20 to a hundred thousand each. It's insane to me yeah it's a baseball is one you know not many things get signed in baseball it's like a bat a ball sometimes there'll be a base i feel like that's one of those markets like what you said like man you guys aren't capitalizing like i want a vial of dirt from fenway you know what i mean i had i I threw my hat down into camden yards one time and made the security guard rub it in the warning track so that i had it on my hat and that was like the coolest thing i'd ever done that's so funny. That's that's great. <laughs> what is a type one photo exactly? Yeah. So when they were taken back in the day, you'd you'd get the negative, and then this would be the direct printing off of the negative, and it's it qualifies as a type one photo if it was done within two years. So you get the negative, and then this would be like the next. This is a type one is what it actually looks like once you make it look nice. Uh, let me uh, find what the exact word is for that process. But I was I was trying to buy digital photography at an art show recently, and you know every vendor I was like, hey, like, do you guys have any like one of one, basically, where you've only printed one of these photos, and like, do you sell the? Would you sell the digital? Like, would you sell the file? Because obviously, you know, a lot of photography is digital. And they're like, no, not when I can print twenty thousand of them and sell them all for one hundred and fifty dollars framed. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess it makes sense. He's like, yeah, it would be so expensive if you wanted to buy the digital version. And I just thought that it was, uh, you know, I mean, it's good for the artist, but as someone who's looking for, you know, something one of one or one of two or even one of 10, pretty difficult in like the digital art space. Yeah. So the, the official term is developed. And so first generation photograph developed within two years of the original negative. So oftentimes they are one of one. Sometimes there are mm-hmm. a couple. Sometimes there are none because they were destroyed. Then type two is is just like a further out or off of the type one, type three, type four, type five. But yeah, some of the best type one photos sell for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. That's really interesting. In terms of when you think about your projects now or what you're interested in over the next two months or two months, two years, is there anything um, really that you're doubling down and really focusing your attention on outside of, you know, your podcast, utility mics, any other projects? Um, the collectibles content that I'm doing, you know, I'm sort of in, in the process. Like my goal is to digitize every asset ever, you know, do like these short videos on each individual asset and just have this catalog of millions of videos of millions of assets. That's sort of the goal. We're like 25,000 assets in. So Got about, I don't know, 10 million to go. So that's going to be a forever process. But as much as I can speed it up, the better. I do about like 50 to 100 a day, though. So, you know, it uh, it adds up for sure. 
don't know if I've, I've seen these. Are these like short, like real style videos or, or how are you doing yeah. this? Yeah, like real style, like on my TikTok okay. and on YouTube shorts. Yeah. That's, where, that's where most of those look. That's smart. I've heard YouTube's really pushed in their shorts. So I, if you do some any content on there, I've heard they're really helping you pump it. Have you seen that? 100%. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that wine video I talked about earlier, they just, you know, I thought it was a pretty bad video, but they pushed it to a few million people and, you know, everybody's pumping stuff. Granted when that happens, lots more videos are published, more competition and all that. But I think it's, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. I think we'll be, you know, we're earlier on in our, our stage here as a company and, you know, we're really hitting our stride in terms of understanding how to deliver our collections to investors. But I think we're also excited internally about finding new ways to display and share the wines in our collections with folks. You know, I think the Rally has done a really good job of sending out kind of the little tokens and icons and, you know, that represent the different invested assets that people are involved with. I think that's really cool, something tangible, you know, and so we explore that every now and then we've launched collections where there are wines that are, that tell a similar story as the wines in the collection that people are able to kind of like buy a package of them to taste for themselves at home and stuff. We've explored that. And um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in our space to, to do more cool representations of the assets. hundred percent. Yeah. I think there's a lot of room for growth and I think that's where, uh, that's where it's going to come in. I just hope that, you know, these next two years, whatever ends up happening with the markets don't scare, you know, some of these, these great people away, but you know, everything happens for a reason. So I'm excited to see how it plays out. Appreciate you joining. We're definitely going to share down below in the bottom of our episode. We'll have your utility mics projects and, and your podcasts and anything else that you'd like us to share down there. People can go and find you, but thanks for joining. Really appreciate all that you're doing for the collectible space and, you know, your interest in wine and definitely, you know, continuing to open it up, I think, to more people. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm a fan of what you guys are doing and pushing this, you know, collectible space forwards as well. So I'm excited to see what you guys continue to do. Thanks, man. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.